Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash complete developer podcast. When a company begins building a new product, the development team usually either has expertise in the industry or they have easy access to people that have that expertise. As software companies mature, many of the employees, including developers, testers, project managers, and designers, find themselves further and further removed from the daily lives of those who use their software. Not only does this make it more difficult to onboard new employees, but it also makes it much harder to foster reasonable discussions about what the users of a piece of software actually want. In this episode, we're going to discuss user personas, which is one approach that is intended to reduce the pain associated with this process. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Well, dude, I've uh, I've been working on a project with a friend of mine, and there were 170 odd thousand lines of code in one file that was you know, generated code, and I got it down to in the hundred right around 102,000, I think, uh, which is pretty substantial cleanup. And bear in mind, I wrote this code generator years ago, and it just basically wraps all the stored procs in a database. And it was never intended to get as big as it has gotten, <laughs> um, but they, you know, they've been building on it for four years, and so they have a crap ton of procs. And so I, you know, spent some quality time uh, this weekend cleaning that up. Um, other than that, I have changed my eating schedule. You know, I used to eat just once a week, or not once a week, once a day. <laughs> wow, man! Yeah, no, yeah, that's why I've got the figure I have. Right, is for eating once a week. Clearly, an entire cow, but you know, once a week. No. Okay, so it was once a day, um, and obviously that meal happens at dinner time um, because we're recording this before I eat, which is why I'm a little bit, you know, a little bit hungry and not thinking as well as I would like. But instead of eating lunch and paying like twenty bucks in Cool Springs for lunch that's actually decent quality food and isn't just a big wad of carbs, it's easier to do it at home. And so yeah, I'm, I'm saving a fair bit of money, and I've also lost six pounds in a week. And I wasn't doing this for weight loss, right? Like I'm not uh, depriving myself at all when I do eat. It's just that you just can't eat enough for it to matter. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's been pretty interesting. And it's it's actually a lot more pleasant than trying to go really hardcore keto. So I don't know. Maybe it'll yeah. end up being a diet. I don't know, man. I, I've never been into, I don't want to call them fad diets, but I've never really been into the, the diet culture, I guess. Um, for me, it's, and you, you've seen this where I will just eat healthy and I'll, I'll build a habit of eating healthy constantly. Just, you know, where I go, you know, the last few times I've been out to eat, I've gotten salads, um, except for when we've gone to, uh, Mexican place down the street at work, I get a burrito, but, um, yeah, it's just, it's it's been like that and then i'll have i'll have times where i just like i'm stressed and i don't focus on that and i you know that's when i i gain the weight and have to fight to get it back off but yeah. I've, I've never been good at like the problem i have with diets is like you have this like strictness about it and i'm like you know what i, I don't like having i don't like telling myself no i don't like telling anybody no but especially not myself yeah so I I guess for me, like that works, it actually works a little bit better mm -hmm. having that, that strictness around it because then I'm, I'm trying to figure out, okay, how can I make this work with this rule? Yeah. And so like keto like, really worked well for me because it's like, how do I avoid all the grains and all the sugar? And, you know, how do you have pizza with that, for instance? And I can make a decent crust out of cauliflower. Like it, it works well for me to have those rules and then try to figure out how to hack. Yeah. I mean, that, that works for you. That does not work well for me. Uh, for me, it's all right. I have so many calories, so much protein I need to take in like these ranges. Um, 
it's kind of like the the macronutrient thing, but it, it a little less intense than that. But it's just like give me these ranges and go. All right, you can eat whatever you want. You know, like yesterday, uh, I went to a church movie night thing. We watched some movies uh, projected on someone's garage, and I had popcorn and Oreos for dinner. <laughs> Yikes! But. Because I knew I was going to do that, I had purposely eaten light earlier in the day, and I knew I was going to eat higher calorie things. It's not something I do regularly, but I, I planned it out because I knew that was coming. So as for me, uh, dude, I've been putting out fires all last week, all day today. We had another app go into production, one that I'm not on, but I've been on call all last week to help them out. Now, thankfully, I didn't have a very heavy workload. Most of it was doing research or testing things. Like we're looking for the best way to implement uh, pull requests into the the new build process that we've started, and things like that. Where it's it's been more research, not like heads down ASA base coding. More like you know Lindsey Sterling in the background while I read stuff, kind of thing. But I'll tell you something, though, dude, outside of work, I have had no end of technical troubles lately. First, and if you guys watched live, you heard about this back when it happened. I had to replace the alternator in my car last week, and then it broke down again this weekend. Uh, We had planned to actually record two episodes tonight, but I was so busy with like all that this past weekend. I just didn't get the episode I was writing finished. Plus, we normally record on Thursdays, and we're doing it on Monday because this Thursday is 4th of July. Now, uh, with all my car troubles, my computer is starting to act up. The fan is running at full speed, and the battery's not charging. It's done this before, and um, it was some goofy update. I think two or three times I had to update the NVIDIA drivers. I've done that. I've done everything I've done in the past, and it's still not working. I don't know. I'm ready to just chunk it and go buy a MacBook, i tell you. I'm just I'm I am that done with Windows that I am willing to go spend two thousand dollars on a MacBook. That's that's just how frustrated I am with it. The uh, but, latest patch is supposedly going to let you uh, limit how frequently updates get applied, but that mm-hmm. doesn't help you now because you've already been burned and yeah, you need another yeah. update to fix it. <laughs> but I am going to speak positive words with authority and say that my technical troubles will be resolved to my benefit. And speaking of talking with authority, got a new book for us for Book Club. This month, we're going to be reading Power Talk, Using Language to Build Authority and Influence by Dr. Sarah Myers McGinty. In this book, Dr. McGinty looks at language and how we use it to influence the world around us. She talks about two types or modes of communication. The first is language from the center. This is authoritative and commanding. And the other is language from the edge, which is more collaborative and responsive. Both forms of communication have their place and purpose but we have to know when and where to use the right one. Over the next month, I'll be going through this book and bringing highlights of her insights to you. Check out the show notes for a link to where you can find the book. So we got a comment on the Code for the Ages episode from Jonas BN saying, uh, about dark mode for browsers, have you ever tried or evaluated dark reader? Um, And I think I have at some point. It's been a while um, since I looked at that, probably two or three years, um, I'd be interested to see how it's changed. Have you looked at it? Uh, Dark Reader is the app that I use. Okay. That's the one that I was telling you about that doesn't actually change the colors. So it just it goes for a different shade of the same color. So yellows are yellow. That's why when I talk about uh, the colors on our Kanban board, I have the right colors. Yeah. That must and be you have nice. To be like, hang on, let me let me switch over to the the non inverted because it doesn't actually invert the colors. It just it changes them. It does invert some images, but it's the best dark theme that I've found for browsers. Huh. And so, it's free. Yeah. Yes. 
Ah, because yeah. I paid for you, the one I use. It's like three dollars a year, which you know is totally breaking the bank. Yeah, uh, you can donate to them, which is what I believe I do. Um, but I think I did when I first got it. But it's really cool, y'all. Check it out for for dark themes. Jonas, thanks so much. That's that's great. That is the one that I use. So yes, it is very good. Send us an email to waterbottle at completedeveloperpodcast.com with your contact information because we've got a complete developer water bottle just for you. Guys, if you like your very own complete developer water bottle, leave us a review in iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all our episodes on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We're also on Instagram and Tumblr, which I haven't posted to in quite a while, so I really need to do that. Also, check us out each week on Facebook Live, where we talk about what's going on in the tech world and answer some listener questions. At some point, we're going to get on other live feeds. I know there is an Instagram Live, a LinkedIn Live, and a YouTube Live that we could get on, but I have to set all that up. So that is coming in the future. Or you could join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com, where Will and I hang out uh fairly frequently we jump on there uh periodically throughout the day i usually hop on during my lunch break just to check out what's going on and say hi to people according to wikipedia a user persona is a fictional character created to represent a user type that might use a site brand or product in a similar way these user types may roughly represent market segments to your marketing department and might represent system roles to your developers designers and it personnel in short, a user persona is a collection of the goals, limitations, perspectives, and desires of a segment of a product's user base. While you're probably already informally thinking of your users in this way, there are many benefits to formally defining your user personas across your company. Over time, regardless of the development team, certain processes are almost constant. Members are added to the team. Members go away, including going into other departments or into management. Testing and documentation has to take place and everyone involved has to have meaningful discussions about user expectations while keeping miscommunication and misunderstanding to a minimum. Yeah, I think those are really underrated too because the amount of cost of a miscommunication or misunderstanding in a development cycle like sometimes stuff will get all the way out to the client before you find out that, hey, this is completely unusable and busted. And having better communication mechanisms in place that avoid this, you know, help save that money. Let's talk a little bit about the problems that user personas are supposed to solve. And the first one is really simple. It's just plain old mismatched vocabulary between departments. A customer in terms of the accounting department is not the same as a customer for support. Right, because the accounting department is probably billing a company and the support department is dealing with a person at a company. So this is something that uh, I've had to deal with where I work because the same term is used to mean different things. Like a facility means one thing in one division and another thing over here uh, versus a... Um, there's just a lot of different things. And so they decided to, all right, we're going to unify our language and we're going to come up with something completely new, which of course is something that is used in a completely different meaning in programming. So you get super confused when you're talking to other programmers because you have to explain, no, I'm talking about it in this term and not in that term. And it's just like, you know, there's no way around this is what I'm getting at. Even when you try to fix this problem, you're going to cause it somewhere else. It's it's not a matter of finding the one definition, you know, the, the one definition to rule them all. Yeah, although that would be really <laughs> helpful. Um, yeah, you'll, you'll never have one definition, you know, that, that works across an entire company and or have a set of one definitions that, that mm-hmm. work across a company. You might have most of them. If you start out this way and you organize stuff, if the company's been around for 20 years and it's, you know, a Fortune 500, that's not happening. I mean, you just do your best and you try to get it where you can understand what they mean when they say a word a certain way. Next, you have improper use of technical terms for the audience. Yes, and this is a pet peeve of mine. Um, Just going to go off on this a little bit. I really hate it when developers come up with a term for something and then inflict it on their audience. 
and I, I can think of lots of examples for this, uh, but sometimes, you know, we have terms that have a very specific narrow technical meaning and they're correct, but nobody cares, right? Like it confuses the users. I mean, just, just all kinds of things. Like for instance, I got burned by this last week. I wrote up an email to somebody who used to be technical, but they're not as technical now. One of the phrases I used in there was HTTP header. This person read it and goes, why aren't we using HTTPS? It's a valid question. It's just, that's not, you know, like the header is just in that payload. HTTPS is the transport channel. It's not, it's not the same thing. What should I have done? I should have said, hey, this is included with the request and, and not gone to that level of detail. Like this sort of thing will really jump up and bite you because the person got agitated. Why are you doing this in an insecure way? And somebody else had to waste their time explaining to them, hey, look, that's not the same thing. And so yeah. you really want to avoid this. Oh, I, I, this happens between developers in different technologies too. Yeah. Um, I was explaining and like, you know, the, the empty object design pattern. So I was working with something I wrote a while back before we started using um, action results as yeah. our return methods. And so, you know, returning a 200 with an object in it for it was successful or like a 400 level error for unsuccessful before we started doing that we were returning empty objects yeah uh, so that things wouldn't like it wouldn't error you could you could handle the error better um, than just returning a null for the whole thing well a, a newer developer was working on it and i yeah he was like well why is it doing this I was like oh we're using the empty object pattern he's like but it's not returning a null for the object it's returning an object with like nulled out values. I'm like, yeah, that's what the empty object pattern is. Yeah. It's just a way to avoid a null reference exception. Yeah. And he, yeah. because he had only worked in dynamic languages, he didn't, he didn't know that pattern because he hadn't really studied it that much. And so to him, an empty object was this object equals null. Right. Which made sense. And like all his other interactions with other developers in that language, that made sense. And so I, I had to like I showed him like this is this is what that pattern is and stuff and he he didn't quite get it I'm like in non dynamic languages this is necessity because of those null reference exceptions yeah you, you either have to do that or you've got to do something you know yeah. and, and usually that that pattern has it returning stuff that doesn't do any damage it's right. kind of the idea there right but yeah I mean and you'll run into stuff like you know, people using the word service to describe a long running process and marketing picks up on that. And they're like, why are you using the term service? We're a customer service organization. And, you know, this thing isn't a service. This thing is a thing running in the background. You know, I heard a story about a guy once that was running Linux software for a pretty fundamentalist uh, Christian company. And one of the things that they did is they wrote a Linux daemon, right? And so somebody just completely flipped their lid in the boardroom because that made it into something that they read. Yeah, it's, you know, it's like you got to throw holy water on the server or something. You know, it's like, no, no, that's like it's Damon as in like, you know, one who watches like from you know, like Greek mythology. It's not from biblical. It's just like that's the term for the thing. And, you know, the technical person was using it correctly, but like you just got to watch this stuff really backfires badly oh yeah and it's it's just it's funny how like even outside of development i've said stuff to people and they they get shocked and i'm like no that's literally what that means like you know that it has, it has nothing to do with the thing you're thinking about yeah um now sometimes people do that on purpose to right. get that shock effect yeah i'm not saying i've ever done that but i'm not saying i've never done that i'm not either. i'm sure you have it today in the last hour. Um, <laughs> yeah, reasonably sure of that. Uh, sometimes but, also you have to translate. Yeah, it's not terms. really dumbing down, is it? Yeah. Now, it's, it's more like, because you can have very, very intelligent people. Like, you and I both have worked with people smarter than us that didn't know the technical stuff. Yeah. Um, and and they and it's just like sorcery to them. Like they just look yeah. at it and go, you you type in the thing and it does stuff for you. Mm -hmm. You know how does that happen? And it's like you don't want to go start explaining CPU registers and all that stuff, right? Yeah. You're just like it's like giving an instruction to an idiot, and it's a really <laughs> fast idiot. <laughs> but there there are some people, and you know what? Yeah. We ran into this 
last month at um, our meetup group because you got hung up on the musical terminology. Yeah. Um, I wrote a, a challenge that was meant to be an array manipulation challenge. I just used sort of a, a story about, you know, learning chords and the notes that are in a chord. And Will struggled because he was like, there's like a little bit of a mental block and a little bit of, I don't understand music. So I'm, I'm trying to wrap my brain around this. And I'm like, it's, it's not, it's, it, you don't have, you're overcomplicating it because it's not about the music. It's about the array manipulation. Right. Um, and then once I said that, you were like, oh, I get it. So sometimes you have to put it into terms people understand. Yeah. Or like, for instance, if you're, you know, if you're describing like event sourcing, you know, instead of going, okay, you know, here's how the event works and it's idempotent and da 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 da, you just go, look, if you're talking to an accountant, you go, it's like an accounting ledger. Accountants don't use erasers. Done. Yeah. So the next one is creation of features that the market is not interested in. Yeah, your development team probably should not be the ones coming up with new feature ideas. Most developers are, are kind of bad about this mm. um, or bad at it at the least, um, particularly when it's a non-developer oriented market. Yeah. Instead, experts in the market who have an understanding of a particular user persona need to be the ones coming up with features for that persona. Yeah. And personas are also useful for determining whether a paid version of a feature is even viable. For instance, if a feature can be done with Excel and your version costs money, you'll have a really hard time selling it to an audience of accountants, uh, but you might well be able to sell it to elementary education teachers. So it depends on the user persona, whether this idea can even collect money for you. That's, that's really funny. I, um, I was talking with, uh, with a friend of mine at church um, helping her out with some stuff um, while she's she's about to get married, and so I was helping her out with the some of the the technical stuff for their wedding. She told me she's like, "So I've got this spreadsheet." And I'm like, "I love spreadsheets. Type A." Yeah, <laughs> and she totally got that reference. Yeah, but then a little bit later on, I said something something else that just like she's like, "I don't even know what you're talking about, there, man." Yeah. <laughs> You know, um, and so it's it's kind of like that. It's like you you have to, you know, spreadsheets or talk to her about music. She's you know she's our worship leader at church, so I can talk to her about music all day long, and she knows way more than me. Like she'll say stuff that I'm like I don't even know what that means. <laughs> um, so it it is like there there are things you talk to some people about um, that you don't talk to others about, or that you you change the way you talk about it, and you have to do that with your marketing. Now, another one is improper prioritization of bug fixes and features. So yeah. your user personas are useful for having a good understanding of what problems a bug actually causes for a user. Right. So for instance, if you've got a bug that's kind of causing display resolution issues and a developer can you know, make a registry entry to fix it themselves, that's not as big of a problem as a situation where you know, wait staff at a busy restaurant are experiencing that and they're having to stop what they're doing and the kitchen is backing, right? It's, it's just I, a very I just, different... I, I think of the the app that I've worked on for so long that is in production and they're kind of doing... They just slow roll out where they have a, a few places that are using it. It's, it's not quite beta testing, but it's more like, all right, we're going to, you know, we're... We're beyond the user acceptance testing. It's in production, but we're not really pushing everyone has to use it. We're, we're going, hey, some of our more technical people come in and, and use this and make sure everything like works for you and stuff. And they're finding things, especially on the employee side of it. They're finding things that I'll have a conversation with, uh, with our contact person. And he's, he's really good because he knows enough technical to, to be like, all right, I for when we say, hey, that's that's going to be an easy fix. He's like, all right, cool, let's do it. Or hey, that's going to take a week or two. He can make the decision if it's worth it. Yeah. But there have been a few times where you know having him has been a blessing because you know they presented a problem. I'm like, ooh, that's a neat problem. It'll take me about a week and a half to figure it out, but. I want to do that. And he goes, Oh no, it's, it's not a big deal. We can work around it. 
Yeah. And then you're like, ah, bummer. <laughs> and, and instead you get the problem. That's like, add this parameter to these 112 stored procedures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or add, do, do audit logs. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So the next thing that, that these will help fix is bad support scripts. Your support team probably has a set of approaches for responding to bugs. And some of those responses may be inappropriate for some of your users. For instance, if your users are IT professionals asking whether they've turned the machine off and back on again, if you don't do it in a joking manner, may come across as insulting. Yeah. Or if you do it in a joking manner and it's a personality subset that tends to be a little tightly wound in IT, that yeah. also doesn't go well. Like security people, ooh, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, you see, that's sort of the a little bit of the inside joke, but that's also why like, whenever I call technical support, I tell them you know, who I am, what I do, and what I've already done to try and resolve the situation. Just because I don't want them going, like, I want to skip the script, so to speak. Yeah. Like, if I'm, if I'm calling technical support, it, it needs to be moved up a level or two. Yeah. Like, when I call you know? Comcast, the first thing I do is talk about, you know, running Traceroute and, you know, here's my DNS server's IP address. And you just, like, you know, just flood <laughs> them with all that stuff so that the guy goes, I don't want to talk to him. Level three. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, given the problems that, you know, user personas are supposed to solve, there's also a set of problems that they can kind of help with that they don't completely solve. Um, and the first one of those is recurring support problems. So um, essentially, your user personas are groups of your users. And so when you notice that certain segments of your user base have problems with certain features, that tells you that you may need to rework those features. Um, it may also point to problems in training and onboarding. And it might also mean that you simply need to hide that feature for that kind of user. Now, again, this isn't a hard fix. It's just it tells you, hey, there may be something here that this is good information for. Another thing that it helps with is user onboarding difficulties. You know, when training new users to use the system, a lot of problems with inaccurate or non-existent user personas will show up during that onboarding process. And you may need to change the way you do training to handle this. Yep. I mean, this is something that, that I have seen firsthand recently with a couple of different apps that I've watched go through production because I'm helping out with, all right, I, I wrote most of or a good portion of the, the enterprise or service level things that it's talking to. So I'm sort of on the on the launch team helping out as it, it goes into production. And I've seen this where it's like, all right, they get it out there and they're UAT where they're most technical people and they get to their just average, not as technical person. Um, yeah. Then eh, you, you start to see how it's being used. And I've seen this happen where a, an app completely got taken out. Like, uh, I wasn't on well, one of them. The very first one I worked on, we spent months working on this application. And then they just were like, we don't want to use it. And we're going to have to come back and, and rewrite it because it did not fulfill their needs because we didn't have a good user persona. Yep. And that's a real thing. And speaking of rewrites, um, another thing that user personas can help you solve this you know, also as a management issue is developers gold plating things. Uh, developers really, really like over-architecting systems, especially like your upper, you know, mid-level devs, you know, down to like the lower seniors before they've been burned by it enough. And with a clear set of user personas in hand, you may have a better case for keeping them from doing so by directing them either to better things or to saying, hey, look, these users are never going to use this. This is never going to happen. Just stop. Yeah. And... I haven't seen that much with the team I, I work with now because we got a really good team. Like our junior developers are are pretty good about not even doing this, which is is great. I mean, it speaks volumes to them because that's more of a junior developer thing to to do. But we've had some people, some contractors specifically that that came in couldn't work on a team very well, and you, I had to rewrite the the code for one of them. Because I, I got in there and the guy was, he was trying to write a finished product 
in a scrum environment. Yeah. So it's like, all right, we're not, you're not doing this story and just, you know, you're not building the skateboard and then the bicycle and then, you know, the go-kart and then the car. He was trying to build the car. Like he was trying to produce a car from the parts of a skateboard. And developers will do this all the time. Like, especially, you know, like options dialogues are really bad for this, right? Where they're like, well, you know, we can change the config on this and they're going to put, you know, UI in place for all those things. It's like, dude, it could be configurable and not be something that gets configured at the very least because, hey, this confuses these people. You know, these people are retirees that are using this software. They don't really care about how you shell execute to some third process, right? Like there, there might be somebody that does and you put that in a menu somewhere for that person, maybe, but you don't show it to the regular user or you make it where it comes out of a config file. So if somebody has to know enough to do that, then yeah, they can go mess with it. Otherwise they can't. And yeah. I mean, this is something that it's, that this is really, really helpful for, especially noting that users get turned off when there are too many options. Um, I think that's part of the problem that Linux has is you can do mm-hmm. anything with it. And what happens when you can do anything is you can't do anything. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's funny. Um, I've kind of felt this a little bit with uh, with photography because when I was taking pictures on my iPhone, it was pretty limited on, you know, the what I could do, what I could control. And then I I was given the um, the DSLR. I mean, it's a it's still an entry level camera, but you know, it's got a full manual mode where I can control everything from the ISO, uh, the aperture, and like I'm watching Will's eyes glaze over as I talk technical. Uh, that's the thing I love about photography is it's like, it's technical, it's science, it's art. It's so beautifully, like just this blend of all things that I love. Um, <laughs> it really is. I like photography, y'all. Well, I mean, I can uh, see that, you know, uh, it art, like, Photography and music really work well with programming because it's a lot of the same. Yeah, there's a lot of technical, there's a lot of art, and there's a lot of science and creativity in it. So there's there's so much, and I'm not even getting into like the the editing and that side of the fo- uh, photography. But what what I had to do because I was talking to my friend Alicia, the the artist that I really like um, her art, but she's also a, a professional photographer and. I was talking to her because she's sort of helping me as I learn. And she said, all right, focus on focus on learning the the three main things, your ISO, your aperture, and your shutter speed. So focus on those. And then, you know, take your pictures in raw and set to auto white balance because you can adjust your white balance in editing. It's kind of like some of the stuff we do with our audio where it's like, all right, we'll adjust that in editing. Yeah. Uh, but it, it was all right. We'll work on these now, and your, you know, figure those out with your different lightings and different scenarios and stuff. Once you get those down, then we'll start looking at these more advanced things and setting those, and then we'll do this. And it's it's been this really like I'm I'm on this really awesome journey of learning, and it's so much fun. <laughs> yeah. But that's that's what I'm getting at is it's. You know, you 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 were talking about too many options, and you can have have yeah, that. Get so you get paralyzed by that. It's yeah, they do. And 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 I say people like I get paralyzed by yeah. that. Yeah, it just it 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 just doesn't work really well. Now another thing that user personas can help solve, but they won't completely fix, is bad marketing copy. Your marketing copy has to be appropriate for the audience you're trying to reach. User personas will help you figure that out, like what that copy needs to look like, and it's going to be different depending on who the audience is, like your sales points of like the benefits of your software and, you know, the problems that your competitors have, it's, it's vastly different in those cases. And by the way, this feeds back into the software as well, because you may actually want it to be configurable based on the target market and based off of what they're typically trying to do with the software. This also helps when marketing is trying to understand the likely objections that a potential buyer might have. In other words, they go, hey, this is too expensive. Hey, this is too complex. Or hey, this isn't configurable enough. Hey, this doesn't hook into my process. When marketing can understand that, that 
feedback comes back into development and it comes back properly. It's actually based around a use case, not based around how the marketer feels, which if you ever worked with very many of them, you realize just how painful their feelings can be sometimes. Given that most of my work has been either contracting, um, contracting or consulting, or, or putting the mental in governmental. Yeah, well, I was going to say, or <laughs> or public sector. I haven't actually had to deal with a lot of marketing people as a developer. Now, when I was in sales, that was a whole other story. Yeah, and it's not that they're bad. It's just that you have to moderate the input that's coming in so that it's actually useful. And this helps yeah. you do that. And, and uh, just like anywhere, you have people that are better at it than others. And the, the people I've noticed that are better at marketing take themselves out of the equation. You know, I, I, you and I both know people that put their heart and soul into things they do. And that is yeah. great in certain things. In art, especially in the, the artistic type things, that is, you, you want that. But in, and, and that, like, there's an art to marketing too. So you want a little bit of yourself in it, but, yeah, yeah, like marketing people, like this, this will help the development team, really. That's the big thing here is that it makes it so that the marketers have a vocabulary to talk to you and vice versa. And you can actually tell which segment you're talking about. That's the real win here. Now, speaking of segments, um, security issues can also be helped by this, which is surprising until you start really thinking about it. You have to think about how sophisticated your users are and what they are capable of doing to mitigate a security threat. You know, for instance, if your software is running on grandma's home PC, you know, sitting at the kitchen table, it's in a very different security environment than what the bank president is running on his laptop. We hope anyway. Um, now, there's some grandmas that are going to lock things down and there's some bank presidents who are going to be browsing sketchy sites. Right. But as far as a statistical average, this can tell you a lot about what your users can actually do to mitigate security problems. This may tell you where certain calculations need to happen. It Are you saying my grandma your- surfs sketchy sites? Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm I getting out be. of this. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're pretty sketchy. So like there's something up the line. Uh, you know? So, I mean, I think that's fair, but no, I mean, like you just kind of have a population average of, okay, what, what do our users do and how secure is it? Because if they tend to have kind of virus riddled computers, you may not want some things happening there. You mm-hmm. may want it happening on a server that you control. Or alternatively, if they've got a really locked down environment, you may not be able to get to a server that you control. And so you may need to do certain computations client side. And so this will help you kind of figure that out. Like what is the, what's the break even point and where should things live? based off of that? Or how should you secure things? Like it's completely reasonable to say, I want to do email with PGP again, unless your user population is general users. If it's tech people, yeah, sure. But you don't want to do that on the open market. And so it's, it's better to have this kind of stuff broken down. So now that we've kind of talked about the, the problems that user personas solve and a little bit of how they solve them, We're going to talk about what a user persona should include. Yeah. And the first and most obvious thing is demographics. And that's what people seem to feel like is the most important. Um, It isn't. It's just the most obvious. Demographics don't necessarily matter, but they're handy to have for marketing and support purposes. You know, for instance, with marketing, you can say, okay, our average user is, you know, is a male between the age of 18 and 40. Um, and they tend to congregate in these areas like the marketing folks use that. The um, support folks, it's the same kind of thing, like the way they talk to people or the communication methods, those kind of things. This can also help when you're internationalizing your application because you might want to look and see where your users actually are. So you can determine whether it's worth doing in certain segments. So like in the U.S., for instance, you might say, OK, you know, X percentage of our users are Spanish speaking. It's worth, you know porting the app over and internationalizing it for them. But if you're in Quebec or if you have a large user base in Quebec, all of a sudden French becomes worthwhile and Spanish might not be in that case. And so this will help you break that stuff down. That makes sense. Uh, I know 
not that long ago, I was working on uh, another enterprise level thing. Uh, that's what I, my, my quote, bread and butter are the line of business apps that I work on, but my cheesecake, you know, my, <laughs> that probably is not a good thing. The, the type of app that gives me diabetes. <laughs> is. Yeah. Is that where we're going? Yeah. 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 Now the, the apps that I enjoy writing are more of the enterprise level applications. And I was talking with our architect and he was telling me, all right, well, when you solve this, several other departments are working on the same thing or have this issue. So when you come up with a solution, uh, and I noticed he said, when, not if he said, when you come up with a solution, understand that we may be sharing it with them. So this may be something that goes across the board. Uh, and so knowing that I worked on it from a different mindset. And, and you kind of have to do that. And the demographics will help. Another thing that will help you is the education level of the users, like actually having that in the persona. Uh, you need to know how sophisticated your users are and you tailor your software for that. Now, that doesn't mean how smart they are. It's how sophisticated. Yeah, that's that's very true. Um, it's not necessarily an insult to people. Your goal as a developer should be to make people more efficient regardless of their educational level. However, to do so, you have to take that into account. You also need to know their industry experience. So this would be the industry that they're working in and that your software is targeted for. If you don't know how long they've been at it or how long your average user has been at it, you can really confuse them. Um, every industry has got terminology for various things and a user persona can help you include the right information for a user without confusing them. And this has been really critical where I work because, you know, with all the stuff in the print mail industry, there's a lot of weird terms for stuff. And if you're not living in that space, you don't know those terms. Or if you haven't lived in that space for a long time, and it may be better in a lot of cases to just simply not use those terms so that people aren't confused by your software. Another thing that you have to understand is their technical capability. Uh, you definitely should know how comfortable your users are with a computer because this makes the entire process easier. The way we build stuff uh, for a customer who is likely a millennial office manager or someone like that um, on the last app I was at, at least, uh, is very different than we build for someone who is an employee who may have been around when everything was still done with paper, which I say that, but I was like, you know, not that long ago, to be yeah, honest like with you. A few years. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, someone that that's been around for a long time understands the paper process really well. And, you know, they can, they can do basic data entry, but they don't, you know, they don't intuitively know that the three lines means it's a menu. Yeah. The hamburger menu. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, we're running into this on the side project that I've been working on a little bit because part of our audience is, you know, heavy in the insur insurance industry and, you know, all that fun stuff in like commodities trading. And then part of our audience is farmers and trying to keep the wording and the UI where different people can work with it and not go crazy has been a very, very interesting experience. And a lot of that has to do with, hey, these are, these are adjacent verticals, but the people that don't have the experience in the commodities trading and insurance, like they can't speak that language. And the people on the other side don't like the language of the <laughs> farmers, you know, basically is the, is the way that it works or they don't, you know, they haven't been there long enough and there's a lot of really confusing terms and you just kind of, you want to break all this stuff down. One of the reasons a lot of non-expert people shy away from things like Linux is the frequency with which Linux tutorials rely on the command line. Now those people can type, right? They can use an OS, but the problem is that this thing is intimidating and they're, they're kind of nervous about it. They're afraid of screwing up. Half the time I'm afraid of screwing up, by the way, as a, as a senior software developer, because um, I've seen, you know, just like variants of what RM-RF can do to you <laughs> um, if you get some of the things wrong there. So, you know, I get it. You know, um, what's funny is my mom is like that about Windows, 
Yeah, well, I don't blame her there at all. <laughs> yeah, but like she is, she's terrified of of breaking stuff. And I I told her when um uh, she got her laptop a while back, like her laptop was running Windows XP. All right, that's how old it was. But when she first got that, I said, "Look, I've got this set up where you can't break it." You know. Yeah. Uh, and then she had, as she got more comfortable with it. She had, she's like, hey, I can't do this. Can you give me admin access to it? And like, she literally asked for admin access. So she knew what she was talking about. And I'm like, all right, mom, I'll give it to you. Why not? Uh, yeah. And what was really funny, though, was when that computer started getting older and just running very slow before I got her the, uh, the Chromebook, she, she was complaining about it. She would literally go to like type in a website like amazon.com go take a shower and come back and it might be done loading. And so because of that, I was like, all right, I'm going to put a lightweight Linux on here. I'm thinking I'm going to have to train her on it. And yeah, just Ubuntu, one of the more user-friendly distros. She gets on there and she's like, oh, boom, boom. Oh, hey, I can do this. I can do that. I'm like, what? You know what she learned on when she was right out of nursing school? A Unix Linux-based system. Yeah. And, you know, people with that kind of expertise, like, and you just want to find this stuff out, right? And that's why you have the, the personas. Now, another thing you should consider as well is what the user's goals are when they're using your software. So you need to know the why um, and why that particular cohort is using the software. Um, and you need to know what they expect to get out of it. You know, if they just want to print a paper, you know, going crazy with typesetting and all those kind of things may not be the right choice. Um, you know, this is something that, you know, a piece of software I really like does well, right? Uh, Scrivener, I use that for writing my book because it doesn't get into all the typesetting crap that Word gets into. Word's great for writing Word documents, writing a novel, writing a technical book, not so much mm -hmm. because it gets in the way. In other words, you just need to know what the user's trying to achieve and what the intended output should be. Another thing that it should include are frustrations, you should have some idea of the things that most frustrate certain types of users. You know, you're not, you know, not only will this make it easier for you to avoid these frustrations in your software, but it helps your marketing team when wording ad copy to go after the competitor's customer base. Uh, or it could, you could solve some of these frustrations with your software. Yeah, well, I mean, do you remember the Mac ads from, I guess it was the early 2000s, where there was, you know, they're saying, you know, how to do something on Windows or how to do something on, on Mac, and the Mac was just, like, smooth, and the Windows thing was just not, mm -hmm. and it kind of played to the stereotypes as well, and, I mean, that's kind of what you're going for, and if you understand the frustrations and you're actually able to mitigate those, you can play into that a lot in the way that you write your software and the way that you write your directions in the software and just the way you lay everything out, uh, the wording on the buttons, those kind of things. This is really helpful for that. Yep. Now, you also need to know about your user's motivation. In other words, yes, they're trying to achieve some result, but what does that result do for them? Um, and users have a lot of different things that may motivate them. Uh, for instance, you might try gamifying things in certain contexts with certain users because it works well with that cohort. So for instance, you know, I think people that are like our age and a bit younger, that can work well in certain groups in certain environments because of all the video games that we grew up playing as kids, right? Like we look at it and we go, okay, I'm going to win the most points. Yeah. And, like and it'll play the, a lot of your weight loss applications and like your Fitbit and things like that, yeah. they're, they're very heavily into gamification. Like every morning I get up and I click on my spark people app so that I can get my points for the day for checking in. And I spin the wheel to get my points. Um, and when I was even more active in the spark people community, you can like buy stuff uh, with points like, I say buy stuff. It's like buy stickers and like not things, not physical things. Yeah. But like, and you it's can, not super valuable. It just, it gets that dopamine hit yeah. essentially for people. But the thing is, you know, well, you know, you were in school to be an osteopath. Can you imagine 
medical software that did that, like that would be a toy, right? Like it would irritate the doctors, even if the, by the way, even if the process worked, it would still irritate the users and they wouldn't want to use it. Mm -hmm. And so knowing those motivational contexts will help because if you can get your application to do more of it, then you win. You get more users playing the game. This is how Facebook has done as well as it has. This is why Google Plus didn't do as well as it had because they didn't have a good motivational funnel to drive people to use their product. You know, that Google already knows everything about you anyway, so why put it on there? One of the things that frustrated me most when I was working at the hospital, um, we moved from paper charting to electronic charting. And right. it was I was really good at paper charting because... I didn't have the nurse's note that had all the check boxes and stuff. I had to write out as a counselor, I had to write out my charts and I got a lot of compliments for the charting because one, I, you know, was in school and learning that kind of stuff in my master's program, but also you didn't have a doctor's handwriting. <laughs> well, yeah, I didn't at that point in time, but no, I, I was able to, I wrote out the important things without extraneous stuff, and I got all the key issues. The, is the, the problem I ran into when I was doing the electronic charting is you had to check a box for everything, even the things that didn't apply to that patient, you know? To a patient that wasn't suffering from like an eating disorder, you still had to check off the they ate today box. Right. You know? And it just, it was, it, it made it less motivating and it took longer. Like I could go before that, I could do all of my charting in about 30 minutes to an hour. Like while they were in one group, I could do all of my charting, but this took two or three hours to do charting. Like there yeah, were a lot of sounds... times I stayed after work to get done with my charting just because I had to go through multiple pages, check all these boxes that were completely irrelevant to the issues that that patient was facing. This sounds like our time system at work because it's this huge form and it's it's like, here's the project, here's the amount of time I spent on it. That's literally all I need to enter. And it's the same kind of thing. Like you can really alienate people and make them reluctant to use your app if mm -hmm. you're not careful about this. Now, speaking of alienating, uh, your users also probably have attitudes that play into the way that they use their software or, or the industry does. Um, and this can impact software design and support. If you've built anything for software developers, you are painfully aware of the fact that developers don't like to pay for anything, you know, anything that somebody else coded because they're like, well, I'll just build it myself. Yes, they could totally do that, but it's crazy expensive and time consuming to do it, but they'll still resist on purchasing something to avoid having to do that. Oh, I totally know because I've had to deal with it with uh, someone I work with uh, every week. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be like, hey, we should we should pay someone to do this. Oh no, we can do it ourselves. I'm like, you got the time for it? Because I know I don't. <laughs> yeah, and it is it's it is a hard tendency to resist. I mean, sometimes if it's a big chunk of change, yeah. it's hard to part with that. Like there's legit financial reasons. But one thing that blows my mind is how frequently I see people who work for you know hundred million dollar companies who get wound up over a ten dollar a month for a piece of software that literally lets some process run mm -hmm. and it's not the software dev team's problem anymore. Like yeah. $120 a year. Like I've literally seen this happen. It's like, Oh, we'll just rewrite, you know, MailChimp because we don't want to use MailChimp and pay nothing, you know, for the volume. Right. Yeah. No, it's that I, I totally see that. And you also need to know if your audience is particularly computer averse. If they are, you have to take extra care not to alienate them with your user interface. Right. Which is kind of what you were talking about with the whole checkbox thing, right? Like you've got other stuff to do in that position. I don't know that it's necessarily computer averse, but you're rushed. Yeah. And your attitude is the crap I'm doing that isn't seeing patients is not healing anybody. The, the whole point of that, um, going back to it, was they were trying to bring the people who were not putting enough information in their charting up to the level. But what they ended up doing was they would just very quickly go through it. And those of us that were really attentive to it 
we're having to spend a lot of time making sure we check the right box. And then even, even if we did that, we couldn't, like, I couldn't go in and say, all right, well, you know, they're feeling this way because of this and like give that descriptive stuff. The, the doctors complained about it too. They're like, Hey, we used to get these really great notes from the counselors that helped us know how the medications were doing. And now it's just a checkbox and you know, it doesn't give me any information. It was a real pain in the psychiatric world. Whereas in other areas of medicine, that kind of just checkbox would have been faster. Right. So it, it really, it wasn't looking at, at that either. Yeah, I think a lot of times, too, software like that is built for the user persona of the guy that's managing the database, not for the person that's entering the data. Right. That's very true. Finally, user personas look at how to reach users. Where do your users hang out? When I was working in addictions counseling, uh, most of us hung out at the bar. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No joke. Yeah, of course not. No, but like, you know, where do they hang out online? Like, are there Reddit communities for these people? Are there conventions that these people go to? Do they get newsletters? Do, you know, do they respond to phone calls? Like, what other software do they tend to use? You know, could you hang out in other communities for stuff that integrates with your software? And might you get good leads there? Like, it helps with that. It also helps when you have to do things like uh, kick out a security bulletin and you forgot to um, keep your mailing list up to date and you need to go, hey, there's a zero day. Y'all need to deal with this. Yeah, that really helps if you can announce it on Twitter and you have a whole bunch of Twitter folks. If it's a bunch of people that don't like Twitter, then that's not going to work. And you better know this beforehand instead of having to try to figure it out when you've got a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, just get buffer and announce it everywhere. Yeah. That's odd too. The other thing you got to look at is what other softwares your users might have. Yeah, because this can tell you a lot. It can tell you how to integrate with that software. It can tell you groups that they belong to. It can tell you, you know, what the user interface expectations are. So if you have people that use a lot of Excel and you can build your product where it looks like Excel, that may help you a lot. Now, guys, user personas are very useful for organizations that are developing software. Not only do they give clarity to how an organization interacts with its users, but they can often drive design decisions by shedding light on user expectations, capabilities, and preferences. You may find that your organization has to support a number of user personas with a wide range of life experiences and expectations. Software is a lot easier to develop, document, market, and even support if you know this information up front. That pretty much wraps us up before we close everything out. Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? Well, I just want to talk a little bit about why you do things like user personas in the broad sense. And the reason you do this is because of miscommunication, right? Like essentially, Think about it as sort of like packet loss, right? If you have packet loss on your network, what does that mean? Well, it means that parts of your network can't communicate with each other or do it poorly. That's a sign that you need to fix the wiring. That's exactly what this is. This is the wiring between your marketing department and your development department. This is the protocol stack for being able to intelligently communicate about stuff. So when you start seeing things where there is the speech equivalent of packet loss. You go fix those. Um, and that's why we brought this up. Now, this is not the only case where where that's going on, right? Like if you've got friends that you try to talk to and all of a sudden you're getting mad at each other, you need to figure out what that is. Uh, we had this early on with this podcast. In fact, we had an episode where we got really, really ticked off at each other and we never published that episode. And we went back and reworked it. And it's because we troubleshot it by looking at this as this is a communication issue, how do we fix the protocol stack so that this doesn't happen again? This will be extremely valuable to you if you can do this in a real world environment. It'll help you so much in your career if you can start troubleshooting in this manner. That's all I got. Stand by for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. 
For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.